0: Welcome to the African Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Thomas Uber. I'm thrilled to introduce today Dr. Anne Hugon, Associate Professor of African History at Paris 1, Panthéon Sorbonne, and a member of the Institut des Mondes africains. We'll be discussing her book, Être mère en situation coloniale, Gold Coast, années 1910 1950, published in 2020 with the Édition de la Sorbonne. Dr. Hugon, thank you for being here and welcome.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here with you for this conversation. Thank you. So
0: to begin with, um, please tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to the study of African history.
1: Well, thank you for for this question. Um, I guess what brought me to the study of African history is, um, I would say, a mixture of serendipity and an interest for African cultures, uh, if this very general term Means anything. Um, I was a teenager in the 1980s and I spent a year in London at that time. And it was a time when the struggle against apartheid in South Africa was quite strong, and this um, brought an interest um, in political activities. I went to a lot of concerts, and there was a strong, you know, uh, mobilization. Uh, I was then a, in secondary school, um, but I used to listen to a lot of African music. But it was not just um, music per se; it was also the, the world of music in you know, political struggles, which um, interested me. Um, and as a student. Um, A few years later, but only two or three years later, I became interested in the ways uh, European had invented Africa and how they had created a form of of radical otherness, which was embodied by the African. But at the same time, how this image was sort of distilled in various versions with the, the use of ethnography, Uh, which was then a new science at the end of the 19th century. And, of course, this coincided with the beginnings of colonization, etc. So at this point, when I was um, studying history and also anthropology um, together, Mary Kingsley, the Victorian British female explorer, was, was crucial for me because her book had just been republished, Um, about 1990, sorry, years later, uh, after its first publication. um, It was around 1980, I guess, that it was republished in facsimile. And I discovered this book through one of my um, teachers at university. And I just loved her book. I loved the way in which she wrote and the difference she made in the, with the um, proof, Predominantly male travel literature, which was not only uh, masculine but really um, strongly female. Uh, female, sorry. Um, and I was intrigued by what she said about missionaries in West Africa. This is how I started working on the Gold Coast, where Wesleyan missionaries had started working um, in the 19 um, sorry 1840s. So I started uh, a PhD on the history of Methodism on the Gold Coast in the 19th century, trying to understand why people on the Gold Coast were attracted to this form of Christianity and how they had adopted it, but of course also transformed it Mm -hmm. thereby. So this is what brought me to the study of African history. And what's interesting is how I started being interested in the ways in which Europeans saw Africa and slowly um, got derived, so to speak, and got more interested in the history of African societies themselves.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Um, So maybe let's turn now to the book. And you've given us this very compelling, as you say, social history of the Gold Coast through the prism or the lens of maternité. And the term itself in French seems to encapsulate a range of different uh, meanings from the biomedicalization of reproduction to motherhood and uh, mothering. And tell us maybe a little bit about the genesis of this project and the questions you were trying to uh, answer through this study.
1: Okay, so what happened is that um, um, I defended my Ph.D. in um, 1995, and it took me another four years before I uh, was able to go to Ghana again, um, by which time I had become uh, more interested in women's history, which was uh, at the time, uh, especially in France, still a relatively new field. In history, um, So I went to the archives and I think the question I was trying to address very broadly was that of the impact of colonialism on women's lives versus men's lives, I mean, um, African women versus African men. And my hypothesis, which of course is not counterintuitive at all. Was that African men and African women were not impacted in the same ways by colonialism? They didn't. They literally didn't see the same aspects of colonisation. So this was my hypothesis. So I just went to the archives, and <laughs> this is this was really what you would call an empirical method. I just started ordering um, documents with anything. I mean, any kind of document with women in the title. Um, So I ended up with uh, files on women in prisons or on widows asking to um, be given half the pension of their deceased husbands and and so on and so forth. And it took me um, a few weeks, not, not, not much, I would say maybe a week or two, to realize that there was actually a whole series of documents on the Accra Maternity Hospital, the training of midwives, the running of maternity and child welfare centers, and also on British women medical officers, for example, and that all this uh, taken together constituted the basis for a study on the medicalization of pregnancy and childbirth and also on new Ethics of, of motherhood, so to speak. So, um, so yes, that that's how I started, and these these are the very broad questions that I had in mind when I started um, on this project, working on this project. So um, now the um, specificity of the Gold Coast case is, um, I would say, the emphasis which was put um, by colonial medical doctors and also by African medical doctors, which was put on infant and maternal mortality as the main causes of depopulation, which was, which was a, a big anxiety at the time. So I would say that in the Congo, it was the duration of breastfeeding, which was considered to impair population growth. In Uganda, it was syphilis, which was blamed for the same problem. But in the Gold Coast, it was the appalling mortality rates, which were seen uh, as the key element in uh, population stagnation.
0: Wonderful. Thanks. Uh, Thank you. And uh, I mean, you've mentioned this uh, already a little bit in terms of talking about the material and the methods that you're using. But in addition to... This uh, broad analysis of different archives from um, uh, Accra and uh, the UK, in the UK as well. And um, you also use oral histories uh, with retired midwives. Um, and I was wondering how you balance these sources and also how you thought of analyzing the colonial archives that. Still tended to be predominantly produced by uh, colonial, male colonial administrators, for example.
1: Yes, well, again, um, it took me only a few days to realize that considering the period that I was working on, which was the interwar period, um, the training of midwives had started in the, in the late 20s, for example, there were probably still uh, retired midwives around, and I could have access to them. And it just so happened that in the archives at the time, there was uh, someone who was going to uh, become a a colleague in the US who's Abhinah Ossiyah Asari. And um, we started talking and she said to me, oh, you know, I I know a midwife, and maybe you could, uh, a retired midwife, you could um, visit her and ask her if she'd give you an interview. So she gave me her phone number, I I called her, and this was the beginning. This was 99, and I had my first interview with a retired midwife at the time. Um, After that, I had about 30 interviews with um, colonial midwives, quote unquote. Um, By that, I mean midwives who were trained during the colonial period. Um, Some of them were very old um, in their 90s. Um, some of them were actually not retired, even though they were in their 80s. I remember two of them who were still working and uh, visited their clinic. Um, and this was uh, these were absolutely wonderful moments, I have to say. It made my research um, so different from what I had um, experienced for my PhD, for example. Uh, The fact that I could um, have interviews, sometimes several, um, go back to these um, women year after year. um, This was really amazing, and I still have the recordings of of those interviews, so then I typed everything, which of course is time consuming, as everybody knows, Um, but still, it was really worth it. of course one of the things that I liked about these interviews is that they filled gaps you know um, which were in the archives um, notably on these midwives social origins for example but also their lived experience of pupil midwives and then um, you know, licensed midwives etc. Um, so as to the um, the fact that um, most of my written sources are androcentric in their production. Yes, this is absolutely true. But I think this is a question that should be answered in multiple ways. Of course, these sources are mostly produced by men. um, And I mean the sources which I found in um, Accra, but also in all the other archive centers that I visited in, in Ghana. I went to all of them. Um, and and also the ones in Britain, of course. Um, they are mostly produced by men, members of the colonial administration or members of the medical services. And these sources represent the biggest part of the material that I relied on. And of course, they convey a strong sense of both European and masculine superiority. Um, and I regretted, you know, I was sorry I could not find enough written sources stemming from ordinary women, those who were constantly talked about in the sources, but who rarely spoke themselves and of themselves. Um, however, there are two things that I'd like to say about this this lack. Um, one of them is that women were in the archives. Of course, they were spoken about as I said, Um, but, you know, there's this cliché which is that um, African women don't appear in the sources. This is not true, especially if you um, focus on um, matters of reproduction. Um, The other thing is that had I had um, sources stemming from these women, Of course, I would have been very happy and I would probably have ended up with a different kind of book. However, um, I think it's important not to romanticise the kind of sources which come from the people themselves. And it's important that historians should keep a distance between themselves and the sources wherever they come from and I think, or at least I was trying to have a critical distance with my archives and all the time being aware of their, you know, um, racial bias, their gender bias, uh, their sense of superiority, the racism, of course, which is so clearing in so many of these sources, but um, at the same time, I think it's very important to remember that um, if I'd had sources from Af- ordinary um, African women, I would still have needed to be critical and not just take them for granted.
0: Of course. Uh, thank you so much. And thanks for this reflection on just analyzing uh, a corpus of archives or even just uh, any sources that we're relying on. So maybe let's jump into uh, the uh, some of the empirics of the book. And I think in the beginning of your study, you start out with this uh, 1917 report that um, kind of that has an influence on the entire arc, it seems, of a lot of, of the book uh, and uh, of the different questions you're analyzing, which is this report on infant mortality that it, it seems to encapsulate um, both some of the colonial demographic concerns around depopulation, the issues of biomedicalization uh, of birthing. Uh, through notably a stigmatization of traditional birth attendance, and also finally a focus on blaming mothers for infant mortality as opposed to structural and economic uh, reasons. Uh, Tell us a little bit about this report, and notably the role of one key doctor, Dr. Nanka Bruce, uh, in making uh, infant mortality this central policy issue um, in the Gold Coast.
1: Okay, yes. Well, um, I found I'd, in Accra, I had found quite a lot of documents which uh, referred to a report on infant mortality or the 1917 report on infant mortality, but I had actually never found the report itself. And I found it thanks to um, my colleague and friend, John Parker, from, from SOAS. Uh, One day he wrote to me and said, oh, at the uh, National Archives in in London, in Kew, I found this file, I think it may be of interest for you, so he gave me the shelf mark, and then next time I was in London, I I ordered it. And I ended up um, with a a thick file of over 100 pages, um, which... um, has a lot of appendices and so on. Um, And it took me a while to understand the architecture of this uh, report. Mm -hmm. So the origin of the report was a letter written by a doctor, Nanka Bruce, who was of Ga origin. Uh, He was born in Accra and he had been trained in Edinburgh, uh, at the end of the 19th century. So after he graduated, he came back to the Gold Coast and tried to um, be hired as a um, medical doctor in the colonial service, um, as a a civil servant. And for odd reasons, um, he was unable to get a position because he had failed to let the administration know that he was leaving for Britain years before. So there was something in his um, you know, in his fine which prevented him from um, being employed by the uh, government. So he started uh, a private medical practice and he was a very popular medical doctor. So he, he, he was quite wealthy. But he was also a member of this uh, very peculiar African, urban, Christian, Anglophone, Anglified elite, um, which is a very intriguing and interesting category um, at the time because they have a lot in common with the um, English government or British government in terms of, you know, cultural references and and worldview and so on. But there's a huge difference in the way they see the role of this particular group, the African elite, in the running of a colony. Um, They are people who want to be employed in high positions and because they have the diplomas, the training uh, for uh, this kind of position, they uh, challenge the racism which prevents them from, um, you know, getting these positions. And Lankar Bruce is typically uh, this kind of, of person. So he founded um, a newspaper, um, which is a weekly, Gold um, Coast Independent. And in his newspaper, he keeps criticizing the way in which the colonial government runs the colony. What's interesting, though, is that he doesn't criticise colonisation as such because at the time, people like him see colonialism as a way or possibly the way of modernising Africa. Um, But when he wrote to the governor in 1915, um, it was... Again, or maybe that early, it was already, um, with a sense of responsibility, um, that the government, um, somehow was not keeping their promises, you know. Um, what it says is, as a government, you are responsible for the welfare of the people. Sure. And we, as a people, Are losing a lot of children and of women in childbirth, so you must do something. And of course, it has to be borne in mind that um, this was the First World War. And in 1915, when he wrote this letter to the governor, asking him to do something about infant and maternal mortality, he went as far as to say the Germans in Togo, in neighboring Togo, are doing much better than the British in the Gulf which of course, was um, probably not um, to the gardener's uh, taste. Um, Anyway, so this is how he started. um, Yes, um, making infant mortality a colonial policy issue. Um, it took the governor another two years mm-hmm. before he actually did something about this letter. And um, he set up a, a, an ad hoc committee on uh, infant mortality uh, whose mission was to try to understand what the causes of infant mortality in Prague were. And this um, committee was composed mostly of men mostly of medical men, but not only. There was a a sanitary officer um, and uh, a a missionary and a few other people. And then there was one woman who happened to be Nanka Bruce's own sister. And they started uh, their inquiry um, trying to understand what was going on. Um, They even interviewed to quote unquote traditional midwives, uh, trying to see whether their methods were you know, responsible for maternal mortality and so on and so forth. And the conclusions of this report was um, were sorry, that um, it was mostly the women's responsibility if uh, infants and women were dying shortly after. childbirth. So the idea was that um, midwives had to be trained and also that mothers had to be trained to raise their children properly. Great. Uh,
0: Excellent. Thank you. And um, so I think the other aspect that you uh, develop quite interestingly throughout the book is also um, Questions of how different medical centers, notably the Accra Maternity and some of the infant and maternal welfare centers, were then repurposed by uh, their, the people who used them, African women who went to these centers. And contrary to some of the colonial administrators' views that women might not use these centers, actually, they became quite uh, very popular uh, uh, during the interwar period. and. Uh, well into the 50s. So maybe tell us about how this came about and how uh, these institutions were uh, then repurposed by uh, their users.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, I think it's important to understand that the colonial way of saying things was uh, that uh, A, African women were backwards and B, um, they would only... Start using these medical centers if they gave up, um, all other kinds of therapeutics. Um, this was the very binary way of seeing the world in colonial times. You were either, um, you know, into biomedicalization or you were into traditional medicine, but In their eyes, you couldn't use both. And of course, their own purpose was to get rid of anything which was not biomedical and replace the old by the new, so to speak. Um, What they had not um, seen in advance was that, A, African women were not what they called backwards, (laughs) And B, that they didn't mind using all kinds of um, methods in order to secure um, healthy, um, you know, progeny uh, children. So because of these two reasons, the colonial um, medical officers were very surprised to see how popular the... Accra Maternity Hospital, but also the Princess Mary Louise Children's Hospital and all the infant and maternal welfare centers, which were preventive medicine centers. Uh, how popular all these institutions became. Um, the sources show how, you know, there were huge queues outside these centers. One medical doctor says that. Um, she had to see two hundred children in one day. You can imagine how not thorough these <laughs> medical you know, consultations were. Um, however, this um, you know is a good testimony of the popularity of these um, of these centres. So that's that's the the popularity. However, uh, the women used the centres not exactly. In the way uh, they had been organized by the um, colonial administration, especially the infant and maternal welfare centers, because these centers were supposed to run along preventive lines, as uh, they said at the time, which meant that mothers were supposed to bring healthy children so that the doctor or the nurses could check that the child was healthy. Um, And this, of course, didn't make much sense to most African women. They could see that their child was healthy and therefore did not really need to, uh, you know, spare the time and and, and cost um, of of transport because these centres were free. Um, But the cost of transport was um, important. Um, So they really didn't see the point of bringing a healthy child to hear a doctor say that the child was healthy. It has to be remembered also that this was uh, in a context where institutions were scarce. Therefore, um, because there was a dramatic lack of um, medical stuff, they transformed these preventive centres into curative medical centers by bringing sick children to the centers so that um, the women doctors, the British women doctors who'd been hired to practice preventive medicine in these centers ended up practicing curative medicine with sick children. Um, And they were actually quite happy with this term themselves. The ones who were not too happy about it were the um, administrators, uh, especially the director of medical services, who literally thought that um, their centres had been, so to speak, hijacked by both African uh, women, mothers, and European um, medical doctors, the, the lady medical officers or women medical officers, as they were called at the time. Um, and this, I think, says a lot about the agency um, of, of African women, but also of uh, British medical uh, offices. Um, in the end, uh, the director of medical services even um, sort of closing down these centres for good, in order to literally punish the, the women you know, for their agency. Um, but petitions were signed in most of the towns where um, the centres were threatened, and they were sent to the governor, and in the end, these centres were not closed down. They were transferred to the Red Cross or kept in the hands of the government or sometimes transferred to missionaries, missionary bodies, as in Kumasi, for
0: example. Thank you, and I think this leads us uh, maybe to uh, our next question, uh, which I think, as you emphasize initially, the uh, this question of uh, maternal and child and infant health in the Gold Coast seemed to have been envisioned, at least by colonial administrators and some predominantly male doctors, as a government project. That uh, you argue there was a progressive shift uh, from this being a uniquely government prerogative to something that was more of a mixed model that relied on different institutions. Um, And one of these institutions um, that you talk about is notably the Gold Coast League for Maternal and Child Welfare. Maybe tell us a little bit about that um, uh, uh, project and that institution and uh, the equilibrium between government and some of these non-governmental projects.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's true that another specificity of the Gold Coast, um, taken as a part of the British Empire, is that the welfare of women and children uh, was seen in the Gold Coast as a prerogative of the government. Whereas in other colonies, all other colonies, as far as I can tell, um, it was um, the you know, transferred by the government to missionaries, mostly. Um, so this was, at the beginning, seen as a state system, so to speak, um, which is why the, um, these centers were free, uh, why the crime maternity hospital was, was sort of free for women who gave birth there, and so on. Um, but after the uh, Great Depression, hit the Gold Coast in the early 30s. And also because at the same time, like I said, uh, both African women and and British uh, female doctors had uh, hijacked the uh, preventive uh, centres, there was a shift and the turning point is uh, 1932. Um, And like I said, it became uh, a mixed... Uh, system. Um, at the same time, the Red Cross, in fact, when the Red Cross started intervening, uh, it had itself stemmed from another voluntary uh, body or association called the Gold Coast League for Maternal and Child Welfare. This was a really uh, peculiar uh, association. Um, because as far as I can tell it was not a female only association in that it was uh, run mostly by men, but the members themselves were all women. Uh, and it was a combination of African and European women who, together, uh, and two of them, a, a woman from Europe and a woman from, from Africa, were supposed to go from door to door in Accra to Tell pregnant women or women who had just given birth where to go for uh, postnatal um, consultations or visits, uh, for uh, to go to weighing clinics, or where to go for prenatal um, consultations. So, they this was a voluntary body um, whose mission was to. Um, so to speak, evangelize the, the Accra population into new methods of um, childbirth and new ways of dealing with a pregnancy and new ways of handling um, a newborn uh, a newborn baby. So um, this is interesting because it tells us that although the project of the government was to Run most of the maternal and child welfare work in the colony. It also relied on voluntary work. Um, and these women were active in organizing baby shows, for example, or jungle sales, um, and you know, in these gatherings they made sure that the right propaganda was mm-hmm. delivered to the to the mothers. Um, sometimes it was even difficult for some of the um, staff. I mean, people who had been trained to um, be midwives, for example, found it difficult to see their work recognized because there was a sort of, uh, you know, um, how should I put this? It, the, the difference between somebody who was a professional and somebody who was uh, just a volunteer was somehow blurred sometimes. Right. So um, it was the what I call the reform of um, of motherhood and of maternity, when um, relied on both government work and voluntary
0: work. And. I think one of the very compelling aspects of the book is also this analysis of um, these tension between professionalization of uh, these, uh, uh, the biomedicalization of uh, uh, giving birth. Um, and as you said, this volunteering, uh, one of the uh, social groups that you're analyzing is notably uh, these um, European women doctors who are uh, in part being Forced by the administration to do mostly preventive work uh, initially, um, and you also focus on the uh, training of uh, African midwives uh, throughout this period. So maybe tell us a little bit about these two uh, different groups. Um, and...
1: Yeah, well, they, the first group was um, the, the group of... Um, LMOs, Lady Medical Offices, was mostly important in the second half of the 20s. After that, because of the Great Depression, most of them were made redundant, and therefore their numbers uh, declined. Um, So in the late 1920s, there were nearly 10 of them, which is an important figure uh, considering the number of medical doctors um, in the colony in general, Um, and they, interestingly, all of them were recruited specifically for maternal and child preventive work, Mm -hmm. but most of them didn't particularly like it, Um, and so much or so little so that um, in the early uh, 30s, they wrote a petition saying that they would rather um, be involved in curative um, medical work, like their male counterparts or, or colleagues. Um, of course, one of the reasons for this petition was that because preventive work was less noble, they were also less paid than their um, male colleagues. Um, and it took the administration a few years to, in the end, Give them an equal salary. Um, But at the time, there were only a handful of them left. Most of them had been sent back to either Britain or other colonies. Now, African midwives were an absolutely crucial element of this reform and biomedicalization of um, pregnancy and childbirth. They started being trained uh, at the Accra Maternity Hospital, which was also a school, a midwife school, Mm -hmm. um, in the late 20s. The first batch of midwives got their uh, qualification in 1931. Um, It was a very um, difficult uh, level of studies. They were trained for three years as pure midwives, as they said. And interestingly, the model was more a French model than a British model. In Britain at the time, um, there were only nurse midwives, meaning that um, women were trained as nurses and a little midwifery, whereas in the Gold Coast, they were trained as pure midwives. So for three years, they studied only anything that had to do with pregnancy pregnancy and childbirth. after 1936, they were um, housed in a um, hostel, the midwives' Hostel, uh, on, I would say, the campus. It was not a campus. It was actually the hospital premises, the core hospital premises. The idea was that they had to be um, under the supervision of their teachers, and this would um, guarantee their, you know, moral um, behavior. So, of course, everybody at the time was quite worried that young women um, would be sent to a capital city, even though Prague was still a fairly small town at the time. Um, And in order to encourage families to send their daughters to Accra for, um, in order to study Middle Free, this Middle East Castle is built. Um, And because as of 1936, they lived for three years together, um, they really, uh, this created an esprit de corps which was very important later on um, in the moral values and in the way uh, these women saw themselves. I think it, it's possible to speak of the identity of, of midwives, you know, in the 40s and um, 50s and, and probably later on as well. Uh, so these uh, midwives were the most qualified women in the whole country. Um, and it has also to be said that it was the only elite profession. Which was female only. Mm-hmm. Teachers, for example, were both men and women, and actually, women were a minority among teachers. And it was the same is true for any other field except midwifery, where the midwives were absolutely all female. Um, and little by little, this um, created. Uh, a new identity, both for themselves and in the way they were seen. One important element is the uniform, for example. Uh, midwives in um, the, the Gold Coast were called the blue nurses, as opposed to the green nurses, which were, who were the general uh, nurses, so you could tell who uh, was a midwife. And, of course, the uniform is also linked to, you know, the official, the government, and so on and so forth, and it's an element of of prestige. Um, Most of these uh, qualified midwives chose to settle a private practice um, because the government service at the time was not easy. You would be sent from one position to the other, in the country, notwithstanding your marital status, the the number of children you had to take on with you, and so on. So a lot of them chose to um, practice in their own private clinics. Um, At the beginning, in the 1940s, they received a subsidy from the government because a lot of the women um, could not... Pay what they were supposed to pay for um, giving birth in private clinics. Um, the other interesting thing about midwives is that they—it's unclear how they saw themselves in relation to the government. Mm-hmm. In, in many ways, they considered themselves as part of the colonial system, and they had also adopted part of the colonial worldview. Um, but, of course, on the other hand, they were quite um, sensitive to the fact that sometimes they were bullied by their teachers and partly because, or maybe only, because they were black pupils. So their in relation to um, the government was um, very ambiguous. Um, the other thing is that depending on where they started their clinic they were more or less welcome. Um, One of the things which again is not um, counterintuitive but it's important to um, insist on that still is that uh, socio-economic factors played a great role in um, the choices women made about where and with whom they would give birth. So Uh, A lot of um, uh, educated women preferred either going to hospital or uh, going to a private clinic, Uh, whereas a lot of illiterate women preferred giving birth at home, but possibly calling uh, a qualified midwife uh, to attend their their childbirth. Right. The, the way they were seen. And another thing which struck me when I was uh, going around Accra for these interviews was that it's always so easy to locate a midwife. Everybody knows a midwife in a uh, neighborhood. Um, so if I came and said, I would like to interview Mrs. So so, she's a midwife. I know she lives in this neighborhood, but I'm not sure exactly where. In a few seconds, I would find somebody who would lead me to the house, um, and this also uh, tells a lot about how they were seen and how important they were to the communities in which
0: they worked. And I was wondering, to your point about their midwives' ambivalence to uh, sort of their links with government policies and whatnot, the. Uh, you mentioned notably a range of different perspectives as we approach uh, independence and the different questions, uh, the different uh, political parties and different uh, perspectives on what independence might look like. Uh, what um, did you, in your, st- in your research, what did you learn notably about um, the position of uh, these midwives in, uh, uh, at this moment of, of independence?
1: Well, this is something I somehow did not uh, enough address in the interviews. I was sorry I hadn't, but then uh, it was too late. So I did a bit, but I did not think at the time that it was very important to ask them about their political you know, mm-hmm. um, views and how they got mobilized, especially in the late 40s. But some of them, however, mentioned their own involvement in in politics. And several of them, um, several of the ones I'd interviewed, had um, been given high official positions in the Ministry of Health after independence, which means this was under Nkrumah, that they had been faithful to the CPP and to the struggle for independence. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gotten these positions. Uh, I'm thinking notably of uh, Dosia Akise, um, whose um, picture was actually used on the banknote in, um, in Ghana in the 1990s, for example, um, or another one uh, whose husband was an ambassador and who had also had an important position in the Ministry of Health. Uh, and both of them were my, among my interviews, um, But I asked them more questions about their daily lives somehow. And what they did tell me uh, was um, how Accra midwives had organized a lot of outings in the 50s, for example, and early 60s, how they used to gather once a month to talk about midwives' things, that's how they put it. Um, one of them had said, um, uh, if you have all work and no fun, it's a dog's life. Mm-hmm. So they would gather together in order to have fun, uh, at least once a month. And um, my hypothesis is that this was a way of continuing what had been their lot while they were in the midwives' hostel. Um, Way of you know being together and of remembering their youth and so on. So yeah, this was very important.
0: Wonderful, thank you. I think uh, finally in the last parts of the book, you kind of zoom out a little bit, and you notably mention that uh, you're interested in thinking about. The moral economy of maternity, and notably certain um, shifts in new priorities and maybe uh, challenges around questions relating to childbirth and reproduction uh, that happened throughout the the colonial period. Um, what do you mean by by this by this question of analyzing a moral economy of maternity, and what are these new? Uh, what are these new imperatives? And,
1: uh, okay, changes? so what I meant by moral economy was um, actually the ideology or ideologies of, of maternity um, and how there were actually several conflicting ideals of, of motherhood in the colonial period. Um, and sometimes they were uh, conflicting even among African communities, you know, um, depending on uh, the socioeconomic status and also on the cultural origins of a woman, the idea that she has of what a good mother is, um, of course, may be different from that of her neighbour, for example. Um, So this was what I was trying to do. So part of this chapter... Uh, deals with the question of um, um, genital uh, mutilations in northern Ghana and how this practice, which has to do with the moral economy of motherhood, a good mother in some societies of northern Ghana at the time is a woman um, whose genital parts have been partly removed. Um, And... The um, colonial administration is very worried about this, these practices, um, undesirable practices, as um, Jessica Kammert, um wrote in her book. Um, so the, um, the government is um, anxious to know whether this kind of mutilation has an impact on childbirth. If the answer is no, then it's clear that the government won't do anything about it, or very little. And unsurprisingly, this is the conclusion they um, could write about, um, which is that genital mutilation is not a medical problem. Uh, and if it's just a moral problem, then they will not interfere with it. Um, but interestingly, in the South, of the country where most midwives uh, practiced and most midwives were from the southern part of the country, Uh, genital mutilation is also seen partly as a backwards practice and um, very much like um, what the colonial uh, administrators analysed. the other thing is that the, the new uh, imperatives, um, the new ideals of what a good mother is, is uh, that it should be the... That's the colonial viewpoint. It's the biological mother who should look after her own children. So that's the basis. And, of course, this conflicts with um, the circulation of children, Um, the fact that a lot of uh, families and households are not monogamous uh, and are intergenerational, um, and that most women are working women. Um, So there's a new ideal of what a good mother is, but it's extremely limited in um, the number of, of women, somehow abide to this um, right. new ideal. Um, the other thing is that there's a new anxiety, or maybe it's not new, but it becomes very clearly um, a real anxiety, a very strong one in the colonial period, Um People want to have children, and not only do they want to have children; they want their children to grow up and reach adulthood, and thereby become themselves you know, ancestors and um, and become adults uh, before even you know, becoming ancestors. Um, so therefore, child mortality and also, of course, maternal mortality is a huge problem in the way people themselves experience it. Um, which is, in my opinion, one of the reasons why biomedicine um, was quite popular. Um, which doesn't mean that people, you know, adopted it without fear. Um, there was fear. Um, but still it was popular. So this, in my opinion, shows that uh, the, what I call the obsession about root production mm-hmm. was such at the time that the um, biomedicalization um, promoted by uh, colonial administration was welcome in many ways. Uh, and again, I'm not saying that people just adopted it per se but they transformed it, they um, um, had recourse to it, they used it in their own ways. Um, and the same thing uh, is true about the new ideals of motherhood. When they could make sense of what was told them, they would sometimes um, you know, um, start looking after their children in uh, different ways. Uh, or new ways, but if it didn't appeal to them or if it was contrary to their daily lives, then they would just give up. There's this really funny um, anecdote whereby a medical doctor writes to a very important chief telling him, one of your wives came to me yesterday, and I told her she should breastfeed her baby every three hours. Then she said to me she had no watch, and what is good for European women is not good for African women. And of course, this, you know, breastfeeding every three hours, which was a new thing in the 1930s and had been globally uh, imported from New Zealand, from a pediatrician um, from New Zealand, made absolutely no sense for a vast majority. Of the women uh, on this planet, um, notably uh, the women of, of, of the Gold Coast.
0: Wonderful, thank you very much, and thank you for this uh, really fascinating uh, conversation around your book. I to conclude, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about the projects you're currently working on and. Uh...
1: Oh. Thank you, yes. <laughs> well, after um, the, the book was published, or actually before it was published, I started working on um, on a new project on uh, juvenile delinquency um, in the Gold Coast. So the period is more or less the same because the um, anxiety about uh, this group or supposed group of youth um, committing crime and various offences, starts uh, being visible in the sources uh, in the interwar period. Um, And so I'm trying to understand both how juvenile delinquency um, was um, created as a new uh, phenomenon but this has already been studied somehow in other colonies and I don't think that the book has anything specific really. Um so what I'm more interested in is to try to understand um who these children were, where they came from, and uh even more importantly, what happened to them once they had been um you know pointed out um by the colonial authorities. Um, So there were some uh, institutions which were created to reform these uh, young boys because they were in the Gold Coast, um, the vast majority of them are boys. So this, as you can uh, imagine, takes me to quite another population. (laughs) Having worked mostly on women (laughs) Uh, for this book, then I'm working mostly on young young men and, and even boys. And I'm also trying to see what happened to them uh, after independence. And possibly if I find enough sources, I'll try to um, address the shift um, from juvenile delinquents to street children. Um, So, you know, change of discourse and and also um, if there were any changes in the way authorities dealt with these uh, young
0: people. Wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. And it was really wonderful to, to talk with you. Thank you
1: very much for your questions.
0: And uh, to conclude, this is, uh, was a conversation with Anne Gon about her uh, book, Être uh, mère en situation coloniale, Gold Coast, années, uh, 1910 à 1950, uh, that was published in 2020 by the Édition de la Sorbonne. Thank you very much. Thank you.